Today, we are talking about a very mysterious case out of the smallest country in the world, Vatican City. Who would have thought that there would be murder in the Vatican? Of any country in the world, the Vatican actually has the highest crime rate. Ten hours later, after the sky had faded to black, something absolutely horrible would happen. A double murder-suicide over a medal? I mean, I think what we know from history is that the Vatican does not like bad press. Well, at what point is this just self-abuse? Why are they trying to cover mm -hmm. this up seemingly if it is so cut and dry that this is a, a murder-suicide? And why was the Vatican pushing this story before forensic testing and autopsies were completed? I must do the service for all the guards remaining as well as the Catholic Church. I have sworn to give my life for the Pope, and this is what I am doing. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Mile Higher Podcast, episode 251. And today we are talking about a very mysterious case out of the smallest country in the world, Vatican City. Yes, we're going to be talking about the Swiss Guard murders, mm -hmm. which the Swiss Guard are who protect the Pope. Yeah. Who would have thought that there'd be murder in the Vatican? I know. And I've never... Even, I mean, I don't know that much about the Vatican. I didn't know they had special guards, which I guess makes sense, right? I mean, most world leaders have some type of special protection. I mean, but these guys are special. Like, these guys are fly, They got fancy man. outfits. We'll get into it. Very interesting stuff here. Um, but today is going to be a little bit different because our lovely producer, Janelle, is very sick at home. She's got a fever, so she cannot be here. Although we do have two new faces joining us. One is slightly new. We have Julia here. Hey. Um, Julia joined us, what was it, two weeks ago yep. for our last philosophy episode. And you guys loved having her on. So she may start making more appearances. So she's going to be joining us today to kind of guide us a little bit more when it comes to the Vatican. Since Josh and I are both not Catholic, Julia is Catholic. And we also have Tom, who is also oh, uh, Catholic. <laughs> we just found all of our Catholic yeah. employees and brought them on today. We're excited to have you here today, Tom. Excited to be here. All right. You ready to get into this? Yeah, let's just go ahead and dive into this because there is a lot of ground to cover. Yes, and there is. With that being said, we need to start with who are the Swiss guardsmen? So if you've ever visited the Vatican, which Kendall and I have not, however, Tom I believe has, and Julia has been to the Vatican as well. Mm -hmm. Do you remember seeing these guys, the Swiss guards? Yeah, it's actually kind of funny. So I've been a couple of times, and I remember the first time I saw them, I like was so taken aback. I was a kid, and I like grabbed my dad, and I was like, who are those people in those goofy outfits? And he's <laughs> like, oh, they're guarding the Pope. They're Swiss guards. I'm like, oh, you're kidding. Like, Yeah, it doesn't look like. So they are an elite military group. But by looking at them, you'd be like, it's a bunch of clowns, right? <laughs> just by how they look. I mean, Jeez. just judging by how they no, look. They look they like have weapons jesters. Yeah, like they kind of got the medieval sort of mm -hmm. vibe going on to them. But yeah. they're actually guys you don't want to mess with because they'll mess you up. Tom, did you see them in person? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, um, I've been to the Vatican City three different times. So once when I was like little, little, and I'll remember that. Once when I was like a teenager and I was living in Germany and then I went back as an adult for shits and giggles with a friend. 
And um, <laughs> I don't know, because I, when I went back as an adult, I already knew like all these conspiracies in my mind. So I was like looking at the guards in like this weird, like fantastical sort of way, like <laughs> imagining they were way cooler than they looked. But yeah, they're pretty goofy. Yeah, the outfits are kind of wild to me. I mean, I would think they would have to protect the Pope. Right? Wouldn't they have people Machine in like guns? Yeah, and, like all know, black, decked out in tactical I'd picture gear. like SEAL Team Six. But you got to think, Vatican and Vatican City is a major tourist attraction, so you don't want to make it feel like it's unsafe there, right? Yeah, and, I guess it, so. and it's kind of like if you go to oh yeah, London and right. and the Queen's Palace, and then you've got the the royal guards there and stuff, and they've kind of got their own outfits too. And you go to Canada, they've got some outfits. It's it's weird. We don't have. They've I mean, got- soldier of the unnamed tombed i'm saying that completely wrong but you know what i'm talking about in washington mm-hmm. dc where they have a soldier oh, yes. standing guard over this, yes, this tomb I, i've been there 24 7 mm-hmm. for whatever reason we just stick to like the very um i guess the formal military like, uniforms age, here but we don't yeah. have any of the cool fuzzy attire <laughs> fuzzy. that some of these other guards <laughs> yeah have. they've got feathers it's got ostrich feathers coming out of the swiss guard helmets it looks like they would not be very threatening. You know what I'm saying? Well, I think that's kind of like the, the point of it. They don't want it yeah, to look too okay. threatening. I, I see what you, you don't mean. want like families coming there to see the Pope. I mean, it's a spiritual place. You don't want to make but it feel like a... But what if shit goes down and they've got to run in these outfits? Oh, they're... They you just they tear them, them off, off and they're like bulletproof vests underneath and they're ready to go. Interesting. Maybe they do. They so... Have, they have service weapons as well. Yeah. Which they, we'll get yeah, into, but... Yeah. They're not like they just, just carrying... They just use those <laughs> axe things, which look like... What's up with the axe? It almost looks like a dog symbol. I don't know. It's a very interesting outfit. I had never seen these before. But if you want to become a Swiss guard, here are the requirements. First off, as the name suggests, you've got to be Swiss, which is kind of interesting. You have to be Roman Catholic, a male aged 19 to 30 years old, and you must be above 1.74 meters or 5 foot 7 inches tall. And you must be unmarried at the time of your recruitment. You are able to get married later on, but usually it's only allowed for guardsmen older than 25 who have also reached the rank of corporal. You also have to have completed basic Swiss army training, as well as an apprenticeship or college degree. Even if you meet all these requirements, competition is intense. The guards make up an elite military group, sometimes known as the world's smallest army. In the past, new recruits had to prove that they did not have any physical deformities and commanders often came from noble lineage. So it's very much like a there's a reputation surrounding it and this it's very prestigious and obviously it's the top of the top end up being Swiss guards. But these soldiers are also trained in both traditional and modern weaponry as well as counter terrorism. But once accepted, you will undergo 176 hours of vigorous training in Switzerland. After this, you'll be shipped off directly to the Vatican to start work. Now, they don't make a whole lot. You actually get paid a salary of 1300 euros per month which is tax-free, so that helps. As of 2015, that's about $1,100 US. And overtime work and accommodations are provided by the Vatican. The Vatican's cheap as fuck. Like, what? I am so confused. Don't they have tons of money? You would think they'd pay their elite military group a little bit yeah, more. Yeah, to protect the Pope. Which, I mean... They get donations and stuff, too, right? The church T- gets tons donations. Tons of people send them money all over the world. Yeah, the Catholic Church is probably, like, one of the richest organizations on the planet. But they make this so prestigious that you have to work your ass off and be perfect and you get paid ass. Yep. Okay. Like a thousand bucks a month. Interesting. In 2002, they made about 942 US dollars. But again, they don't pay taxes. They get free health insurance. There's next to no living or food costs. And they have two duty-free shops to purchase from. 
So you can really save a lot of money working for the Swiss Guard. But again, it's not like you're super rich because of it or anything. So they're not doing it for the money. They're doing it for the prestige, for the title. Absolutely. Well, think about having, yeah, having that on your resume. I mean, that's, that's, a, <laughs> that's a great resume builder. I Swiss guess Guard. So. Each year on May 6th, a ceremony takes place where new guards are sworn in and returning guards receive medals for their service. And this date for this ceremony commemorates the 1527 sack of Rome in which 147 guards lost their lives protecting Pope Clement VII. So this goes back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, which is why they, they kind of keep the tradition alive with the uniforms and why also they go with Swiss men. Uh, because the Swiss men really held it down back in 1527. <laughs> they lost their lives in the process, but mm. the Pope was forever thankful. We actually have some footage of a May 6th ceremony we'll play for you real quick. Imagine seeing these guys running through a battlefield. They'd be such easy targets. I know. Their outfits really <laughs> like give them away. Talk about, uh, yeah, the whole point of like warfare is like to be camouflaged and hidden. And but these, these guys, guys don't go to war, do they? No. No. Back in the day. Maybe back in 1527 when Vatican was getting raided. But were, wasn't camo also like a, in America, like a modern yeah, invention? It is. Mm. A, it is. Yeah. Camo didn't come sense. around until like World War II, I want to say. I think it was Vietnam almost because... The yeah, boonies, actually, the yeah. Suits where the green helmets. Oh you know, yeah, full metal jacket. Yeah, like that yeah, was later on. It was because of the conditions in Vietnam, and they need to hide. I think you're right. Yeah. So these guards are required to serve for at least two years, and they must have and maintain impeccable moral character. And of course, this involves following Catholic rules of moral conduct. The Swiss guards, like we said, are famous for these colorful Renaissance era uniforms. And these uniforms are some of the oldest uniforms still in use today. The tunics are striped red, yellow, and dark blue, the colors of the house Medici. And they also traditionally wear blue berets and tunics in more casual on-duty settings. They also carry pikes and swords. And what's interesting is it's been long rumored that these uniforms were designed by Michelangelo himself, but unfortunately, this isn't true, even though that would be way more interesting. That's pretty legendary if that was true. (laughs) For ceremonial occasions, they wear white neck ruffs and ornate metal helmets. These helmets are topped with ostrich feathers, as Josh mentioned earlier, and they're colored depending on the soldier's individual rank, which is pretty interesting. These soldiers live in the Vatican City, which if you didn't know already, like I said earlier, it is the smallest country in the world. Its two-mile-long borders are contained entirely by the city of Rome, making it an enclave. And the city-state is ruled by the Pope, seat of the Holy See, or government of the Catholic Church. Its population is around just 500 people, and the city-state covers an area of 100 acres. 
So the population, it's actually kind of interesting because it's around like, I think the number now is like. That was like close to a thousand now or something. Uh, the report or the, the statistic I read from the Vatican website says 610, but that's just the number of people that are citizens. It, mm. So that counts people that are also not living in the walls of the Vatican. And they estimate that number around 250, so about half. And that's wow. just the last time I checked the website. Yeah. So kind of <laughs> crazy. Schools are bigger. Schools? High schools and stuff are bigger than the Vatican. Oh, yeah. No, definitely. So you might be wondering with such a low population and, you know, these are all, you can safely assume Catholics, godly people, what is the crime rate like? So in terms of crime of any country in the world, the Vatican actually has the highest crime rate. What? Yeah. Wait, how does that work? Well, I mean, we're not talking like... (laughs) serious violent crime per se crime encompasses pickpocketing things like which is a big big thing there is a lot of pickpocketing there's a lot of scams going around like outside the vatican people kind of trying to con you into all sorts of different stuff um you know it's it's a tourist destination in europe so there's going to be a lot of people looking to take advantage of that um and you know there also has been violent crime in the vatican in the past it's obviously you know pretty rare as you might imagine but does happen as we'll be discussing today and it's also important to understand that this doesn't mean that there's more crime that happens in the vatican than anywhere else in the world it's just like more crime happens per capita so oh with a smaller population it's okay. you're gonna have like a disproportionate yeah crime rate that makes yeah sense. it's not really fair to like measure the vatican to say like denver like crime right per capita, okay because okay it's such a small amount of people yeah. So because there are so many tourists, like we talked about, there's pickpocketing, there's shoplifting because there's, you bet your ass, there's all sorts of gift shops yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah. in the Vatican and also sex crimes. So mm-hmm. the Vatican only has one jail, but it's rarely used for these types of crimes. Instead, these are handled by the Italian authorities because they have, you know, the resources to do so. And a few other random facts about Vatican City. It's the wine capital. People in Vatican City consume roughly 20 gallons of wine per year, over six times as much as the average American. Wow, that is interesting. Yeah. But I guess it makes sense. Yeah, you have the communion wine. So yeah, yeah. They, they probably a lot go of that. through a lot. It's no grape juice there, man. They use the real <laughs> stuff. Also, the Vatican has no hospitals, meaning no delivery rooms. Because of this, no one can be a citizen of the Vatican by birth. You can only be granted citizenship to work in the service of the Holy See. So that is so interesting. So there are no births in Vatican City unless I guess you're doing a home birth or something. They don't really do citizenship like if you're just born within the grounds, I believe. Does it, it's okay. not like automatic. Like maybe you could grow up there and, you know, gain some favor with the Pope and the Pope might give you that citizenship. It's, it's something that's kind of earned through working for the pope and the church and mm. like cardinals. An eventual thing yeah, yeah cardinals and important like people in the church like that have citizenship and you know that's kind of where the population fluctuates is when the cardinals come in and right all sorts right of people like that okay i would i would think it's pretty prestigious to hold citizenship to, oh, to the vatican city yes you so are they don't just want to hand it out to everybody like i was just thinking in my head i'm like what if there's a pregnant tourist that comes in she's in her third trimester 
she's there to see the Pope. All of a sudden, she starts giving birth right in the square. <laughs> in the Vatican. And there you go. There's your first Vatican birth. But that doesn't mean anything. But there's no hospital. So chances are they would bring an ambulance and haul you off to an Italian hospital. Well, sometimes babies can't wait. It just happens immediately. So what would happen then? So there are 135 Swiss guards who protect the Pope. Their living quarters or barracks are located at the eastern edge of the city, north of St. Peter's Square and beside the Vatican Palace. The guards can also ask to be buried in the Vatican's Teutonic Cemetery near St. Peter's Basilica. Swiss soldiers were historically considered to be the best in the world. So Swiss guards have been serving the Papal State since 1506. They had a reputation for bravery and self-sacrifice that had been passed down from centuries of service. And in fact, in 1981, a certain Swiss guardsman showed proof of this self-sacrifice by protecting Pope John Paul II from an assassination attempt. The Pope had been attacked in St. Peter's Square by a Turkish gunman named Mehmet Ali Aja when the noble guardsman in plain clothes used himself as a human shield in order to protect him. We've got a little video here explaining the event. The Pope, the former Cardinal Karol Wojtyla of Poland, shot today in serious condition. They said he was shot in the chest. There were two shots fired at the Pope at roughly 11.21 a.m. today, Eastern Daylight Time. The Pope had been entering St. Peter's Square for a general audience when an unknown assailant or more than one assailant, assailant fired at him. It's reported that one man has been arrested. Vatican Radio said the Pope fell into the arms of his secretary and the Jeep in which the Pope was riding drove away at high speed. Witnesses said blood was flowing near the Pope's neck. Vatican Radio said four or five shots were fired at the Pope. Now we've just had the report that there were two. And quote, we saw him fall from the shots. They both survived the attack, though, and the guardsman was honored for his bravery. So this is actually really interesting. Um, the Pope actually forgave the assassin for, you know, trying to kill him. And when the Pope passed away, uh, the assassin actually went back and left flowers on his grave. So wow. he became really reformed. While he wow. Was, That's yeah. fascinating. That's a beautiful example of grace. <laughs> that really is, is, Josh. You're right. That's it really like, is, though. It honestly mm -hmm. is. Like, that's yeah. that's mm -hmm. like what it's all about right there. And that just shows you. There's not a more extreme example of of forgiveness than somebody trying yeah. to kill you and yeah. you forgiving the person trying to kill you. Mm -hmm. So and much so that so that bad. person. Yeah. They come leave you flowers on your grave. It's pretty cool. That is. Hmm. That's a cool story. So the name of that guardsman who jumped in front of the bullet for the Pope was Alois Estermann. And he's going to be a key player in today's episode and the tragic events that unfold on May 4th, 1998. But before we get into that, we're going to give you some background information on Alois, as well as another Swiss guard who has a very key role in this story. So Alois Estermann was born October 29th, 1954 in Gunzville, Lucerne, Switzerland. And he was the oldest of five children in a farming family. And they were peasants who lived in Beeramunsta. He later went on to attend business school in Lucerne, where he graduated with a degree in commerce, similar to a finance degree, in 1975. Instead of going on to work for his family farm, he decided to join the Swiss military. The Swiss Guard was the perfect combination of his two passions, the military and the Catholic Church. Alois was commissioned in 1980, and he allegedly became the Pope's personal bodyguard after the 1981 attack. 
and he quickly rose up the ranks of the Swiss Guard for his exemplary service. Alois was dating a Venezuelan former model named Gladys Meza Romero. And Gladys gained some fame in her home country when she gave up her modeling career to become Venezuela's first female police officer. And the two of them met in an Italian language school in Rome. They ended up getting married in 1983, and Alois was promoted to major that same year. The couple had no children, and in 1996, Gladys unfortunately had a miscarriage. But the couple still wasn't giving up, even though Gladys was in her late 40s at this point. The two of them lived together in an apartment for Swiss guards. While Alois worked as a guardsman, Gladys worked as an archivist for the Venezuelan Embassy to the Holy See. They were both very religious, and in their free time, they liked to attend church and study theology and canon law, or the laws of the Catholic Church. Alois was very popular with Vatican officials. Again, his heroism during the 1981 assassination attempt endeared him to many. He and Gladys frequently attended diplomatic events, and they made powerful friends at those events, including with bishops, cardinals, and monsignori. So now that you're more familiar with who Alois Esteban is, let's talk about Cedric Tournay. Cedric Tournay was born on July 24, 1974, to his mother, Muget Buda, in the canton of Valais, Switzerland. He and his two sisters, Melinda and Sarah, grew up in the small Swiss alpine village of St. Maurice. He was always a very sporty kid who loved to be around others. He was also very protective of his family. Cedric and his sisters were raised Catholic, which was their father's faith, and his mother was surprised when Cedric informed her that he was joining the Swiss Guard. She was worried that the Vatican would make him a priest, but that didn't stop him, because Cedric officially joined the Swiss Guard in 1995. In August of 1997, Cedric was promoted to the rank of Vice Corporal, which meant he would be signing on for another year, and he would be getting a bigger and new apartment with a better view. Cedric was really excited to receive this promotion. At the time, Cedric was engaged to an Italian woman named Valeria. He wasn't planning on staying in the Swiss Guard forever, and he hoped to one day settle down and start a family. Now, Cedric and Alois definitely had some beef. Cedric was not a fan of Alois at all. He considered him to be a strict disciplinarian, and Alois was 20 years older than Cedric, who was 23 at the time. Cedric had been serving in the Swiss Guard for almost three years by this point, and Alois, by all accounts, did not like Cedric either. It seemed like he actually really had it out for him. In fact, another Swiss guard wrote that Cedric got along with all of his other colleagues except Alois. Their animosity had gotten so bad to the point where they were an incompatible working pair. However, it is important to note that there is some conflicting information about how popular Cedric was. Some sources say that he was polite and well-liked, while others say that he was kind of an ass, that he was disrespectful, insubordinate, and sometimes temperamental. Alois was allegedly the only person to vote against Cedric's promotion to Lance Corporal. And when Cedric broke the rules, Alois would punish him more harshly than he would punish other guards. This included one incident in February of 1998. That month, Cedric had spent the night outside of the barracks without official permission. And this was actually a pretty common rule violation for Swiss guards, but Alois came down on him hard. He disciplined him via letter, which was delivered to him the next day, and the punishment was very, very harsh. Alois informed him that he would not only be not receiving his three-year service medal, 
but he would also be immediately expelled from the Swiss Guard, all for staying out a night outside of the barracks. Isn't that crazy? That's that's pretty pretty rough. I know. This was an unheard of punishment for a relatively minor infraction, and it would have ruined Cedric's career because any future employer would be able to see that he was expelled from the Swiss Guard. Obviously, Cedric protested this. Both he and the other guardsmen felt it was a cruel and unusual punishment. So Alois backed down on both punishments, maybe because he knew that if he kept them, all the French-speaking guards would have revolted. Which, as a side note, there is allegedly hostility between the guards who spoke French and the guards that spoke German. These French guards allegedly complained about this treatment, particularly from Alois who spoke German. This three-year service medal was set to be awarded to Cedric at the annual ceremony on May 6th, and Cedric was pumped, and his parents and friends were even traveling in to witness it. The next few weeks went on, seemingly without incident, but that would all change on May 4th, 1998. That day around 11 a.m., the Pope appointed Alois as a new commander of the Swiss Guard. He was obviously elated by the promotion, but his excitement would be short-lived, because just 10 hours later, after the sky had faded to black, something absolutely horrible would happen. Alois spent the rest of the day in the barracks, drilling the new recruits in preparation for their swearing-in ceremony, which was just two days away. He also gave a short interview about his promotion. Meanwhile, the list of award recipients had been published, and Cedric noticed that his name was not on the list. And he realized at that point that Alois really was taking away his medal after all, and he had just found out only a few days before the ceremony. So needless to say, he was very upset. I mean, all his friends and family were supposed to come see him get this medal. And now, because of Alois's vendetta against him, all of that had changed. The other guardsmen pretty much unanimously agreed that this was an unjust punishment. And one said, I defy you to find anyone who was not granted the medal after three years in the guard. The rule is that it rewards the length of service, period. When Cedric found out that his name was not on the list, he ran to the barracks in tears. He tried to contact the guard chaplain Yella, but he refused to see him. Cedric also tried to talk to a Vatican cardinal, but he was not available. However, his mother claimed that Cedric had actually known he was not going to get the medal since December of 1997, but he was over it and it wasn't bothering him anymore. But his mother also said that Cedric called her at 12 p.m. that day and he told her that there was bad news. Alois would be promoted to first commander, and something serious would happen. She asked what that something was, and Cedric said he didn't know. But there was a lot of tension amongst the guards now, and everyone was very stirred up about all of this. Later that day, Cedric did an afternoon tour of duty at the Synod of Bishops. After that, Cedric went back to his apartment and wrote a letter to his mother. He then changed into casual clothes and threw on a black leather jacket. Then he grabbed his Vatican-issued service weapon, a Swiss-made 6 hour 75 9mm semi-automatic pistol, and headed off into the night. It was a rainy evening in Vatican City. At 8.46pm, a friend called Alois's apartment to congratulate him on his promotion. Gladys picked up the phone, and they chatted for a few minutes. Gladys explained that Alois had a bad cold and the friend recommended some medication she could pick up from the Vatican pharmacy. Then Alois got on the phone. He took the receiver from Gladys and sat down in his armchair. Meanwhile, Cedric Tournay was making his way towards the apartment, and he was armed. Just before 9 p.m., a nun named Sister Annalena entered her apartment on the second floor. It was next to the apartment Alois and Gladys shared. 
She had left her door open, and she heard the sound of heavy footsteps making their way up the stairs. Sister Annalena turned around to see who was there, but she didn't see anything, so she shut her door and didn't think anything of it. Alois and the friend went back and forth about the upcoming ceremony. The friend would be bringing his wife and daughter, who was Alois's godchild. Then the friend heard a weird sound, as if Alois had placed the receiver on his chest. The friend didn't know it, but Cedric had knocked on the door, and Gladys had let him in. The friend heard a sound like noises from a distance. He could only recognize Gladys's voice. And then there was a buzzing sound, followed by two sharp blows. Cedric had pulled out his Vatican-issued service weapon to shoot Alois twice. One shot struck his cheek, and the other hit his left shoulder, and both shots struck his spinal cord. Alois then lost consciousness and hit his head on the floor, and he was dead. Cedric turned to leave the apartment, but Gladys was in the way, so Cedric shot at her as well, but the first shot missed and hit the elevator behind her. He fired again, and the second shot struck her spinal cord through her left shoulder. She fell against the wall and then slipped onto the floor and had also been killed. Then Cedric turned his back to the window, knelt down on the ground, bowed his head, and he placed the barrel of the gun in his mouth and pulled the trigger. The bullet went through his skull, killing him, and then Cedric collapsed forward on top of his gun. Around 9 p.m., Sister Annalena heard strange noises coming from the apartment next door, and she was concerned because the neighbors never made much noise. What she didn't know was that this was the sound of something truly terrible happening in Aloise's apartment. The friend was actually still on the phone line when he heard the shots, but he didn't think it was gunfire. He thought that someone important came over and the sharp pops were the receiver accidentally falling to the ground. So he hung up and he figured he'd call back later. But Sister Annalena was so worried by the noises that she left her apartment to investigate. And that's when she found Aloise's door was left wide open. And she noticed that there was blood on the floor. And when she walked in, that's when she found Gladys lying dead on the floor. Sister Annalena performed a quick sign of the cross in shock. And then she immediately ran to notify one of the other Swiss guards. Lance Corporal, Marcel, Riedi. So Marcel came to investigate. When he went inside, he found the bodies of Alois, Gladys, and Cedric. As you can imagine, it was an absolutely horrifying and shocking scene, with blood all over the walls and the stench of gunpowder and death permeating throughout the apartment. Marcel had never seen so much blood in his life. Word spread quickly of the killings, and people began to crowd outside the barracks, priests, nuns, and other guardsmen all completely shocked over the news, and everybody was praying. A papal spokesman, Joaquin Navarro Valls, arrived at the apartment just minutes later, and he immediately closed off the apartment and didn't let the Italian police inside. And because of this, the scene was never secured. Actually, over 20 people came in and out of the apartment without protective gear, Yikes! potentially contaminating the evidence. The bodies and furniture had also been moved which is not helpful for actually trying to figure out what happened in there. Joaquin quickly released a statement on behalf of the Vatican three hours later, and they concluded that Cedric had killed Eloise and Gladys in a fit of madness. Here is what the statement said. The captain commander of the pontifical Swiss guard, Colonel Eloise Estermont, was found dead in his home together with his wife, Gladys Meza Romero, and Vice Corporal Cedric Tornay. The bodies were discovered shortly after 9 p.m. by a neighbor from the apartment next door who was attracted by loud noises. 
From a first investigation, it is possible to affirm that all three were killed by a firearm. Under the body of Vice Corporal, his regulation weapon was found. The information which has emerged up to this point allows for the theory of a fit of madness by Vice Corporal Tournay. So Joaquin was kind of known as the Vatican's spin doctor, and this statement was put out before an autopsy was completed. So many people wondered how he reached this conclusion, especially the bit of madness bit. So an autopsy was performed on all three bodies at the Vatican morgue the next day. And the autopsies were performed by two forensic experts who were Vatican consultants. They were sworn to secrecy and they were not permitted to take any written copies of their reports. That afternoon at 1.30 p.m., Joaquin spoke at a Vatican press conference and he said that Cedric had rang Alois's doorbell, shot him and his wife with his service weapon, and then turned the gun on himself. He cited the motive again as a fit of madness, driven by being denied the medal and his poor working relationship with Alois. Joaquin explained that Cedric's pride was hurt and the killings were a final act of anger and disappointment. But the media wasn't satisfied. They thought the story was too neat, too smooth, too complete. And it came out before the autopsy had even been completed. The motive seemed like it just didn't make sense. A double murder-suicide over a medal? And why was the Vatican pushing this story before forensic testing and autopsies were completed? Why weren't they allowing the Italian police to investigate? Was there some sort of cover-up going on? I mean, I think what we know from history is that the Vatican does not like bad press. No, so they do not. So when there is multiple murders or more, multiple deaths within Vatican walls, obviously they're going to try to do what makes them look best. And the fact that they're blaming Cedric already before having all the facts or even an investigation conducted mm-hmm. is, is very telling because obviously Aloise yeah. had just been promoted to commander of the Swiss Guard. Mm-hmm. So you don't want to put any bad press out about him because then that really like throws a wrench into everything. Mm-hmm. So they quickly just blamed it all on Cedric, which at this point we don't know for 100% fact what really happened based on the evidence that we have. And they moved everything around too. Remember, they went in there and moved stuff around. So they're just like, all right, this is what happened. And to Clearly, say a fit of madness him. without yeah. even that's what does that even mean? Fit mm-hmm. of madness. Right. Who's just How do you even determine that? just pissed off yeah very very fishy on may 7th a funeral was held for Alois and his wife at saint peter's a funeral was also held in lucerne his pallbearers were his fellow swiss guardsmen cedric was also given two funerals one in rome and one in switzerland cedric's funeral in rome was comparatively very private it was held at saint anne's church on the outskirts of the vatican and he was buried in switzerland near his home The former Swiss Guard commander who came just before Alois made a speech at Cedric's funeral in Switzerland. He said that Cedric was well-liked by his fellow guardsmen. He loved life, and he put himself at the service for the church. But parts of this former commander's speech were apparently too scandalous for the Vatican. He was straying too far from their official narrative, so the commander is not allowed to repeat the speech at the Rome funeral. Part of his speech read, His act remains mysterious. Who can understand his last gesture? At this tragic time, may whys and wherefores remain in suspense. Many questions remain unanswered. I think that God knows the real truth and the precise reasons behind this tragedy. In February of 1999, 
Nine months after the killing, the Vatican released a 10-page summary of its internal investigation into the murder-suicide. And they confirmed their earlier statement that they made three hours after the incident. Again, they cited denial of Cedric's award as the motive for the killing. They also said that Alois's promotion was also a contributing factor. And they named Cedric as the only individual responsible for the murders and his subsequent suicide. Cedric reportedly had bronchitis at the time of his death. And it's also noted that Cedric's urine had traces of cannabis derivative. So they said that marijuana use could have impaired his mental capacities. The investigating magistrate thought that if Cedric regularly used marijuana, this could have led to paranoia and delusions. But he also noted that this chronic use theory was just a hypothesis. And keep in mind, only his urine tested positive, not his blood. So he hadn't consumed marijuana within three hours of the murders. So he wasn't high at the time. And the evidence pointed to Cedric occasionally using marijuana. But of course, they're using this to their advantage. Yeah. To try to make like, oh, he was in that fit of madness because he was probably smoking mm -hmm. weed and lost his mind. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, well, marijuana stays in urine for 30 days. It takes mm -hmm. like 30 days to completely flush it out of urine. Unless you but, drink a ton of water. Yeah, or you go get some uh, quick fix. <laughs> Those of you out there know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, that mm. And that's not even a surefire yeah. guarantee to, to get rid of it. But mm -hmm. the fact that it wasn't in his blood is pretty telling. Like if it's not in your blood, then he's probably well, not high. It wasn't high when, yeah. it, when it happened. The autopsy also found, quote, a pigeon egg sized cyst in the left frontal lobe of his brain. This is like something that I thought was weird. And also many other people online thought was just like a weird <laughs> yeah. way to describe the size of something. A pigeon, pigeon egg, egg size. Like well, how many people are familiar with a pigeon egg versus another type of egg? So, I mean, it's definitely not an American thing, but. I read some people online were saying, oh, yeah, we say we say that in <laughs> Europe. Like, I guess some people in some certain parts of Europe are like, oh, yeah, well, we have a lot of pigeons here. So they're familiar we, with the pigeon eggs. Yeah, but we have pigeons here, too. Yeah, we do. Is that yeah, supposed to be do. like an accurate size comparison? Is that why they say that? Because if you think about that, a pigeon sized egg cyst in the frontal lobe, I feel like you'd be seeing that externally. Like, that's a that's pretty big. Like pigeon eggs are not like teeny tiny things. Like this is pretty big. Like I don't think you'd see it externally though. So you don't often see, even people who have big tumors, you don't often. Well, it see depends it. on where in the brain though. But, I know, but like, even the in frontal the frontal lobes lobe. up here, like I guess it could be down deep in with the frontal lobe. Well, but... I guess we need to do some research on how big a pigeon egg is. Yeah, to be honest, I, admittedly, I have no. Let's no look idea it up. What a pigeon I need egg to know more like. about it's this pigeon size. egg. I know robin egg, like. I've yeah, heard robin egg size. Those are small, right? Yeah. How big is a pigeon egg? Look up pigeon egg compared to robin egg. I'm curious now. Because that is Europeans that is a have really bought weird... into the conspiracy that pigeons are real. Oh, they're yeah. Real. The birds aren't real theory. Well, okay. Pigeons and giraffes are not real. Oh, well, giraffes. Got... Yeah. There's a giraffe you ever been theory? On that subreddit? <laughs> giraffes no. aren't real. I haven't heard of giraffes. I've definitely heard of birds aren't real. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, it's it's a complete joke, but the, the Jurassic Park Real subreddit is one of the funniest things you'll read all day. Okay, I am definitely it's checking fantastic. that out. So we actually... Oh, look at this. Yeah, we got a couple... Hey. hey. A couple of different birds. We so the swan egg is the biggest, followed by turkey. Where's pigeon? Okay, I see it. So pigeon is about almost twice the size of a robin egg. So that is pretty big. Maybe you would see that. 
That's what I'm saying. That's a pretty big size cyst. Like, but a cyst is a kind of like movable, right? It's a so fluid it's be sack, like squished. Yeah, in there. it's like a sack of fluid. So I guess it could, could it really... be like compressed. It's not yeah. like necessarily hard, right? Like a tumor. So, hmm. so they thought maybe this pigeon egg sized cyst could be the cause of Cedric's abnormal behavior. The report pointed to the letter from Cedric to his mother as evidence that he was suffering from paranoia and delusions. So according to their theory, Cedric likely killed Alois due to anger over Alois being this strict disciplinarian and the mental illness or psychosis was brought on by the weed he was smoking and this brain cyst. It's been theorized that Cedric was a narcissist driven to insanity and murder. So case closed. Or is it? This incident and the Vatican's handling of it has spawned a number of conspiracy theories. Muget, Cedric's mother, and other members of the family have always disputed the Vatican's version of events. They do not believe that Cedric killed Alois, his wife, and himself. They believe the investigation was flawed and there was a cover-up at play here. Muget also believes Cedric's letter to her, which was given to her by the Vatican a day after it was leaked to the press, is actually a forgery and not actually written by her son. Here's some of the reasons why. Apparently, the paper was not the usual kind that Cedric used. He wrote that he was in the Swiss Guard for three years, six months, and six days, but that was actually one month too many, and he was always very precise. The name on the envelope was Madame Muguette Chamorel, but that was the name of her second husband, and all the letters Cedric sent her from Rome used her maiden name, Buda. He put her phone number on the envelope, something he'd never done before. Also, a Swiss handwriting expert commissioned by Muget examined the note and determined that it was not written by Cedric Tournay. I mean, that's, that's a lot of evidence there. Joaquin had done a lot of work to have this letter kept from the public, but it was leaked to Italian newspapers. Here's some of the contents of the letter. It reads, Mummy, I hope you'll forgive me because what I have done, but they were the ones who drove me on. This year I was due to receive the Benamorenti which is well-deserved in Italian, and the lieutenant colonel refused it to me. After three years, six months, and six days spent here putting up with all the injustices, the only thing I wanted, they have refused it to me. I must do the service for all the guards remaining as well as the Catholic Church. I have sworn to give my life for the Pope, and this is what I am doing. I apologize for leaving you all alone, but my duty calls. Tell Sarah, Melinda, and Daddy that I love you all. Big kisses to the greatest mother in the world your son who loves you. So, uh, I don't know. So this is like one thing that uh, Mugat has said that another thing that's wrong with this letter is greatest mother in the world. She's like, he would have never called me that. Like, they just didn't talk <laughs> Yeah, like it doesn't that. sound very natural sounding. It sounds like... Mm. Yeah. And uh, it was, you know, riddled with like spelling and grammar mistakes apparently. Um, mm. But just something really interesting about this letter is you know he he references these injustices but he doesn't really specify clearly the metal would be yeah would be something but injustices seems like you know three years six months and six days spent putting spent here putting up with all the injustices that doesn't seem like one or two things you know necessarily related to Eloise like it sounds like bigger than that yeah. yeah Like, he's been kind of worn down by multiple injustices. And, you know, there's also this in the the beginning line. Mummy, I hope you will forgive me 
because what I have done, but they were the ones who drove me on. Who is who is they? Because, you know, you could say clearly there's Eloise, but I doubt his wife had, you know, any real beef with right with Cedric. It seemed like she was shot because she saw she what happened. Yeah. 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 She's yeah. like collateral. Yeah. Yeah. Why? He probably wouldn't have known to go after her or would have known that that was going to happen when he writ- wrote that letter. Right. It seems like, but, but he's, they, it's not him. It's not Eloise. It's they. You're right. Who is, they. who are the other people? Who, who is they? Well, if this is truly written by Cedric, why not be more precise? Why not actually name Aloise. the specifics? Mm. I'm going after Eloise because he was taking the medal from me. Like if you're writing this sort of, I'm about to do this horrible thing, this commit this murder, and you're writing a letter to your mom, who you're clearly close with. Why is it just so vague in so many areas? It, to me, it sounds kind of concocted, like people got together and like, how do we make this guy seem like a nut job who is upset at the world and, and everything in his life and you know, almost trying to like create this manifesto for him almost. Like he's angry about all these injustices that he's feels like have have been um, brought against him, and all these things have happened to him, and you know he's mad at the whole church, maybe or or something like that. Yeah, I mean, and to play devil's advocate, maybe he was referring to they as the Swiss Guard or the whole church. And we don't know. Like maybe he did have beef with some other people too. Yeah, maybe he was planning to do more, but then. I don't yeah. know, changed his mind. Yeah, that's a good point. Possibly. Although I will say it does sound a little concocted to me. Like, Yeah, especially when you think about the handwriting analysis. Right, the handwriting, which, again, I mean, we're taking their word for it as far as it being an expert who analyzed it. But I would assume that it was, a, mm-hmm. you know, if you assume all the facts in this case, then yeah, it does seem weird. One ex-guard even said, the way Tornay was treated before and after his death disgusted me the way the vatican dirtied his name and when cedric's body was sent to switzerland for burial muget took his body from a swiss morgue to perform another autopsy and this autopsy was performed by forensic scientists at the university of lucerne they had asked for a copy of the first autopsy report from the vatican but big shocker here they were refused and many of the results of the second report contradicted what the vatican reported. For one, the exit wound in Cedric's skull measured seven millimeters, but the bullets in the Sig Sauer 75 that he allegedly fired were nine millimeters. So the fact that they brought up that the nine millimeter bullet from the Sig Sauer 75 uh, would have caused a bigger, you know, bullet wound Mm -hmm. than the seven millimeters is actually fairly accurate and on par with what a nine millimeter would do typically be about seven and a half millimeters so i don't know that there's actually a major inconsistency with with the the measurements there when it comes to the bullet wounds i think that's pretty much Mm. pretty pretty standard with what you'd see with a nine millimeter bullet wound so you know you can take it for what it is i mean maybe they just didn't understand you know ballistics and things like that but from what i'm seeing you know from experts that analyze this kind of stuff it's not entirely out of the realm of possibility that it would be seven even though it's a nine millimeter bullet the wound's going to be smaller than that at the, around the diameter interesting so i don't know much about 
ballistic. So, but then again, they're also referencing the exit wound. So, you know, maybe that is slightly smaller. But it, to me, it seems like I'm curious where if that's the exit wound size and what's the entrance wound size. Because obviously, once it goes through, it's going to probably be smaller coming out. So, I will say it's hard to, hard to know without actually seeing the the autopsy report and the measurements that were taken. Because again, he had the nine millimeter in in his mouth. So the entrance wound is going to be, you know, in the back of the mouth. Mm-hmm. So the exit wound out the back of the head was seven millimeters. So I think that's pretty on par with what a nine millimeter bullet would do mm. based on other measurements out there and ballistics done. Well, as far as other inconsistencies that they noted, he also sustained a fracture to the cranium bone, which was not in the bullet's trajectory. The Vatican's autopsy also found that pigeon egg-sized cyst in Cedric's head, but the autopsy his mother ordered found no such cyst. So that's that's interesting to me because I wonder if they did actually find the cyst and they just removed it during that initial autopsy. Or couldn't it just go down if they on its re- own? Couldn't it like... Well, if they went in there and found it, you wonder if they removed it or they did Why something they to it. Why would they remove it? But maybe being exposed to air or something, it could have like popped and dropped. But I mean, that's a big discrepancy to be like, yeah, they're saying there was a. You think you'd at least see like remnants and, of it or something. Well, maybe they like cut around it or something and made it smaller. It drained. I mean, who knows? So there's infinite possibilities there. But I do think that's very weird. Another thing they pointed out was that two of Cedric's teeth had been chipped. The report said that this could have been the result of the gun being forced into his mouth, but another medical examiner said the teeth were likely chipped by the recoil of the gun in Cedric's mouth. I think the teeth being chipped is a is a major, ma- big maybe, because could the gun have been forced into Cedric's mouth? Sure, but he could have also put it in his mouth and it makes a lot of sense, you know, a recoil from that gun would, you know, barrel of the gun's going to come up when you shoot that gun. So it's going to chip the teeth for sure. So I, I don't know. It's hard because it seems like they were hoping that there's going to be more evidence from the second autopsy to disprove the first autopsy. But I just don't, I don't see a whole lot here because even the sustained fracture to the cranium bone, which there's tons of cranial bones. I wonder what specific bone they're talking about. I mean, there's like, there's like the whole mouth and jaws considered, I believe part of the cranium. Then you've got the whole, skull encompassing the brain so i'm assuming it was a cranial bone within that front portion so it's hard because they're like i don't know how you would prove forensically between somebody putting a gun into their mouth or somebody forcing a gun into their mouth pulling the trigger i just don't you know they're both going to be very similar in, in injuries so i don't know how all that really helps all that much but there was also a lot of blood and saliva in Cedric's lungs. Muget's lawyers say that this couldn't have been a result of suicide, but instead maybe internal bleeding from some blows to his head before he died. They say that if he had shot himself and he immediately fell forward and laid on his side, then the blood wouldn't have drained into his lungs. So they say the blood in his lungs must have been the result of Cedric sitting upright for some time. Meaning he either had to be sitting up after he shot himself, which he wasn't, or he suffered some sort of injury before he died. There were other flaws in the investigation, though. The fingerprints and blood were not collected, and the crime scene was not secured properly. And whenever that happens, I understand why families would have questions, because it should have been processed like a crime scene and protected, and 
because then you can actually get the truth. I mean, you can act through crime scene reconstruction. You can really figure out the facts most of the time of what actually unfolded. And because it wasn't secured properly, all that goes out the window and it all becomes like, I mean, you're just, you lose a ton of evidence. You can't really accurately put the pieces together to get right. the, the clear view there. You're kind of making assumptions based on where you think things were based on expert opinion versus like where stuff actually was where you can, you know, do blood spatter analysis. You can actually look at all these different things scientifically versus they're trying to get all the information from the autopsies. But when you don't have that initial crime scene investigation at the actual scene yes. where you can actually try to like figure out how it actually went down, it's all up in the air at that point. I mean, it can go either way because they don't know. There's yeah, just no true. way to know. So that's that's the difficult thing with this whole thing. I mean, objects inside the apartment were not taken or tested for DNA. No crime scene photos were taken. I think there's only like a sketch of how things were in, in there initially, but that's it. This is all according to Ferdinando Imposimato, a former investigative magistrate and Italian senator. The Vatican claims in their report, of course, that 10 expert opinions were ordered in the case. They reported that experts conducted microscopic, anatomical, histopathological, toxicological, ballistic, graphological, and telephone technical analysis. They also stated that there were five criminal police reports, 38 interrogations, and many inquiries to official bodies of the Vatican State and the Swiss Bishops Conference. They report that various photographic documentation and forensic evidence also led to their official conclusions. Cedric's mother said that six months after the incident, two men from the Vatican came to her house and asked her not to make any statements to the press. They also told her not to take any legal actions, and they threatened her in front of her daughter. And for decades, his mother has pleaded with the Vatican to look at their investigative report and case files, which have been shrouded in secrecy, as is typical of the Holy See. But finally, pretty recently actually, in 2021, she received a glimmer of hope. The Vatican Secretary of State, Cardinal Pietro Peroline, contacted the Vatican's court and asked them to grant Muguet's request. So now she has to wait for the papal state judiciary to decide. Muguet didn't know whether or not they'd decide to let her see the investigative report. She knew that there was a good chance they wouldn't allow it, but she waited anxiously in case they did. So Muguet did not have to wait anxiously for answers for very long because in 2022, the book Sangue in Vaticano was published by lawyer Laura Zagro. Laura wrote the book and finally, after the Vatican Secretary of State asked for Muguet's request to be granted, it was, sort of. The Vatican allowed Laura to access the court files, but there were some rules. She was only allowed to view the document in the tribunal and she wasn't allowed to make copies. Two armed guards supervised her while she looked over the documents. Since she wasn't allowed to make copies, she could only write short notes. These notes had to be reviewed then by the prosecutor's office before she took them home. And she had to view the documents during multiple sessions that took place over the course of a year. Laura said that her review of the documents confirmed what Cedric's mother was alleging. That the investigation had been absolutely shoddy. Laura had sent a copy of Blood in the Vatican to Pope Francis. She claims that he responded with a personal letter. 
Laura said this letter gave her hope that the Vatican could be ready to acknowledge the flaws in their original investigation. She also hopes that Cedric's legacy could be repaired, even if he ends up being confirmed as the killer. This book, too, uh, I did really try to find it in English, um, even in Italian, to see what I could do with it on that end, but only get uh, a physical copy in Italian. In Italian. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Probably cost an arm and a leg to ship it over here. So unfortunately, I wasn't able to take a look at that, but it would be interesting if she came up with, or came out with an English edition or yeah, something like that. I couldn't even find like an Italian, like ebook version online. So really, yeah. Hmm. Amazon even didn't have that. Amazon, I think, if I recall correctly, you could get it, but it was hmm. from like a, a physical copy, Italian bookseller. You know, it would have taken weeks to get here and probably cost, you know, a pretty penny. So yeah, yeah, yeah. interesting. Well, there's also this other book called Bugie di Sangue in Vaticano. So similar, similar titles, but this one translates to Bloody Lies in the Vatican. The book was published in 1999 by the Disciples of Truth, which is, quote, a group of Vatican ecclesiastics and lays who cannot continue to avail with their silence official truth told by the Vatican. That's an English translation, I presume. Everything is alleged and possibly rumored here. So in this book, the authors support the claim that Alois acted as the Pope's personal guard. And these authors believe he was killed as a result of a rumored conflict between the Opus Dei and Masonic parties within the Vatican hierarchy. Both of these groups were allegedly trying to annex the Swiss Guard. So there's another motive for you. You're probably familiar, if you're a Mile Har listener, with the Freemasons and the conspiracy theories and lore that surrounds that organization. So you might be wondering, what is Opus Dei? Well, it's Latin for work of God. And it's a Catholic organization made up mostly of laypersons whose mission is to find God in everyday work and life. The organization aims to have its members use their everyday lives to know God and bring others to know God. Both organizations are said to be similar in their secrecy, so kind of like secret societies. Fondness for ritual and the legion of clueless, unwitting, rank-and-file foot soldiers these organizations both have. The typical everyday members of these organizations act as sort of a good PR, sort of a front cover for them, allegedly. You know, think of your average Joe at the local Masonic Lodge. They don't really know what's going on there. Did you guys grow up with a lodge, like a Masonic Lodge near you guys? My, my, uh, my grandfather is a Freemason, actually. A Masonic Lodge? He's like a 23rd degree Freemason, Carl. Oh, yeah. I yeah. know about your grandpa, but yeah. I've never heard of a Masonic Lodge. Is that like where they hang out? Yeah. Um, I don't really know what to compare it to. It's just we had one like in my hometown, like right in town. There was one in the town over. I mean, it's. Have you heard of the Elks or some of these other kind of like fraternal groups? Yeah, I know what the groups are. I'm just, I guess, didn't know it was called a lodge. Yeah, they call it a lodge. And I, I guess it's just a. It's like a hangout spot, basically. Like headquarters. Yeah. Is that where they host meetings and stuff? Yeah, and like their fraternity yeah. house. It's like a VFW. Yeah, exactly. What's a VFW? Veterans of Foreign. Oh, okay. I see. I see. Which, which I mean, that's the thing is like, do we have one near us? A Masonic Lodge. Yeah. Did Carl go to any? Should of we those? go? To, there's one in Denver. I know that. Can you just go? There's actually a few in, I believe. Well, Kendall, I don't think you can go. You can't go. It's men no only. Women. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. No women. It's a sausage fest, baby. So what if you try to get in? What are they going to do to me if I try uh, to break in there? You can't just 
No, they kill you if that's the case. They kill you? Yes, they, no. They don't kill you, but they tell you politely to leave. And I could say politely, fucking This is America. No. I'm coming in. <laughs> Private property, though. So Please you will be trespassed. You. Yes. No, it's, it, you, I believe it. you have to be like invited into it. And then you also, there's like, cert, there's definitely certain stipulations and requirements to be a Freemason. And it's so funny because my, my grandfather was like obsessed with like all these secret societies. Oh, I know. He was a Freemason. He was a Shriner. Mm-hmm. He wear the little, uh, Elge Bell hats, you know, he was all about Actually, the shrine. Actually, uh, my grandpa was the Shriner too. So it's like all these, it's like, it's supposed to be a bunch of men that get together. They, they share their knowledge and do good things for the community. And, you know, it's supposed to be like grown up Boy Scouts in a way. Or like you know? a frat. Yeah, or like a grown up frat. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. But then there's all this like mystery around it and conspiracy around because like all of our leaders are, you know, part of the Freemasons or some secret society skull, skull and bones skull and bones you know george w bush all that good stuff so that's freemasons but opus day is has some of that like secrecy and mystery surrounding it but it's an actual like legitimate religious jurisdiction within the catholic church that is still very alive and well today i think there's like around a hundred thousand people or something in it damn and and it's it's men and women that can be and it's not just mm, maybe i'll join sausage party so <laughs> gotcha. and it's and it's got a different mission too. freemason's not about god it's about worshiping worshiping the devil i'm just kidding maybe not but <laughs> opus one. day is about you know being like a saint and being like christ and all that good stuff so gotcha. opus day let me tell you about it opus day was founded by jose maria escriva in 1928 I like that. Jose Maria is a polarizing figure, though, in the church. And there's some controversy over how he was quickly canonized a saint by Pope John Paul II in 2002. And the rumor on the street is, is that Opus Dei actually bailed out the Vatican Bank for $250 million in 1985, which who knew the Vatican had a bank? They sure do have a bank, a.k.a. the Institute for the Works of Religion. And we'll have to do another episode on like the Vatican and just all the other, or several <laughs> other stuff going because there's, there's so a lot much. of scandalous history and other yeah. kind of dark stuff going on as we know lots of dark stuff going on within the vatican i'm not gonna lie though i have some fear about talking about the vatican for some reason it just i'm scared you know the vatican assassins man. yeah watch out the swiss guard might come for you <laughs> apparently the vatican bank has had a lot of history of dealings with the Italian mafia financiers. So there's just a lot of sketchy shit going on there that we'll save for another episode. But some Jesuits have accused the organization of being suspiciously secretive. It's been alleged that Opus Dei was founded basically as a form of Christian masonry with aims to covertly dominate the world. Other controversies include, and get ready for these, mortification of the flesh, sexual abuse, recruitment of teenagers, elitism, misogyny, cult-like recruiting practices, high control of members in isolation, secrecy, being a Catholic version of Freemasonry, having too much independence from the Catholic Church, illicit use of psychiatric drugs in its central headquarters, and supporting the authoritarian or right-wing governments. Mortification of the flesh, according to Opus Dei, includes three main forms. One is sleeping on planks instead of a mattress if you are a childless woman, wearing circular chain silices with dull points around the thighs that cause pain but no bleeding for two hours a day. 
and self-flagellating while praying once a day. So the sleeping on planks has, I believe, been modernized to where it's now sleeping without a pillow once a week. So that's a big change. A big, <laughs> I'd say a big difference. Sleeping without a pillow once a week. Because yeah. the amount of back problems they started having, they're like, ah, it's so brutal. We can't walk after sleeping. How would you sleep without a pillow? I can't even imagine. Her baby does every night. She's That's fine. true, but she's a baby. She but she's got she like marks on like her face. Because like, you, her hands then underneath. you use your hands as kind of a pillow and you kind of lay in your hand and you got this red marks all down your face. I use my hand as a pillow every night on top of my pillow. Extra <laughs> support. Anyway, getting off topic. So do you guys know what flagellating is? Self-flagellating. It's farting, right? <laughs> That's what I was going to say. <laughs> No, that's no, flatulence. I'm sorry. Flat- flagellating. Flagellating is like whipping yourself, right? Yeah. So basically, there was a group of, I believe they were Catholic, um, people in the olden days that were the flagellants they were known as because they were just <laughs> fanatic with the way that they were whipping themselves for God. Like, Oh, my God. Real weird shit. Literally, oh, my God. Yeah. That's hardcore, man. So today, you can still self-flagellate with like a little kind of whip that you gently more or less like hit yourself on the back with while you pray and, and this, god's into that apparently according to <laughs> opus day i think um you know growing up i feel like this was kind of you know i've never heard of opus day until really like doing the research for this and you know i, I grew up catholic this was not something that mm. i you know knew of and don't think would be condoned you know we practice fasting stuff like that during lent um you know not eating meat or giving things up i think there is a big part of catholicism that is has to do with suffering Mm -hmm. and suffering again like for god we talked about redemptive suffering in the philosophy episode it's it's a part of it for sure um i think that mainstream catholics for sure will not tell you to wear a psyllis around your thigh uh, as a way to get closer to God or or whip yourself anymore. And in fact, I think a lot of Catholics would even discourage this because it could be seen as a form of self, self-harm, which, you know, mm-hmm. God's well, not Well, could cool that on. evolve into other things too, right? Like, how would it be different than somebody who cuts themselves? Um, I think the response would be Perhaps to an Opus Day member would be the intention. Sure. In that, like, you can't do things for the flesh. If you, you know, suicide is considered a sin. Um, you know, you're not supposed to harm the body that God because it's made a temple, you. right? It's still the temple of God. Your body is. I don't know if Catholics look at it the same way as Protestants I don't know if they do. use the word that like temple, but I was taught that you know, harming yourself in such a way is kind of like an affront to God because he created you and he created you for a purpose. And yeah, it's a sin basically to to harm yourself, especially to kill yourself. Right. Um, you know, which opens up a whole other can of worms. But the, the distinction in this case, I believe for Opus Dei would be the intention. You're trying to suffer as Christ did through Christ in in a similar way because jesus was whipped as he carried his cross Mm. okay i see i see 
Tom, it, had you ever heard of that? Yeah, so this is actually something I can I can actually speak a little bit to, which doesn't have to be included in the episode, but if only for context. So ironically enough, there's actually two people at the church that I go to with my family that are members of Opus Day. Really? So, um, I'm not not gonna name names or point fingers because I, I I don't know them personally and that's not fair. Um but they are no longer there and Truth be told, I know quite a lot about Catholicism for better or for worse. I'm probably what most people would argue is not a great representation <laughs> of a traditional Catholic. Like I still I still practice. You're but, a modern uh, day Catholic. Yeah, I have some very strong opinions about uh, uh traditionalism, but that that's off topic. But uh, it's basically been not made into a law per se, but between like the Vatican and modern day Catholicism. Um, if you self-flagellate, you are basically risking excommunication to a degree because it has pretty much been determined that like, regardless of the context you're trying to put yourself in, it's not only considered like an affront to try to make yourself Christ-like in physical like representation, because then you're kind of saying like oh i'm the same as god basically and so it's kind of like blurring the line between what's acceptable and also because like julia was saying it also blurs the line quite heavily between well at what point is this just self-abuse yeah what point is this like penance and then you get into an even further problem where you're like okay what if like this person is masochistic now it's a pleasure it's not a penance now you're sinning yeah. So it goes from doing this for God to exactly your yeah. own personal yeah. reasons. So it's uh, like all of that is to say, like, so like the version of like church that I go, basically, like it still teaches like in like Latin and everything like that. So like they're still doing like all like the old like language and everything. But even that particular sect has been pretty outspoken that like if you're a member of Opus Dei, we don't want you here because you're you're blurring too much of a line between what's acceptable and what's not good for anybody involved. So the, the two people that I mentioned that I do know who are a member of it, like are no longer a part of like our church. Cause we're like, yeah, we don't, we don't want that. Wow. It's too Damn. much of a gray area. That is, I've never heard of any of this. That is fascinating. Yeah. Which I was looking at this earlier and you know, they're saying there's like 90,000 Opus Dei members worldwide. And I would assume in the United States, it's a very, very small percentage because they said that the majority of them are in Spain. Mm. Um, there's a lot of Opus Dei members in Spain. But I think a lot of that makes sense, right? Like, mm-hmm. I feel like it would be very dangerous to a congregation to have an individual there who's claiming that they are, you know, Opus Dei member and they somehow have like a leg up on everybody in a way like because of what they're doing and not only that then you've got all these blurred lines there but i feel like that's a very dangerous type of of person to have around i know i know from personal experience congregations don't like it when there's somebody who's different than everybody else Mm -hmm. because that can lead lead people the wrong way i think it's interesting too because i think that leads to the secrecy and the right the kind of insular nature of opus day because you know a lot of tactics alleged tactics and stuff like that um kind of naturally like other their members from main mainstream catholics mainline catholics and 
that kind of creates how do I say it like you know you're more wanting to like be close with and worship with people that also share your same practices and beliefs that maybe the rest of the, the church is right. if Eon doesn't accept yeah. as much it, it creates that sort of mm. you know it's it's how like fundamentalist sex and like Mormonism or you know other religions they have that sort of insular nature to them because right. they're they're other they're almost like a separate group within the religion you know what i'm saying yes yeah so an italian gossip website claims that alois and gladys were both followers of the spirituality of saint jose maria it also says that in addition to his swiss guard duties alois campaigned for some swiss servants of god to be beatified or canonized so does that mean basically like promoted to a saint yeah like so, ultimately that's the goal through um, that um so to be beatified yeah that's um kind of a step in canonization but typically to be canonized a saint um you have to have passed away and then i believe it's three miracles need to be associated with you you know confirmed right miracles with by the vatican by the pope right um and then you can be canonized. So again, we were talking, there was some controversy controversy because um, many people believe that St. Jose Maria was canonized a little too quickly, perhaps, by Pope John Paul. And he has, you know, um, he is sympathetic to Opus Dei. So it just kind of raised some eyebrows. Mm. So the idea behind this is that Alois and his wife were members of Opus Dei. And he allegedly was using his involvement with the organization to have certain people made blesseds or saints. That and his Opus Dei membership may have been a factor in his death. Other salacious rumors have also persisted. One, that Cedric and Gladys were an illicit relationship. Or even that Cedric and Alois were secretly having an affair that drove Cedric to insanity after he accidentally walked in on Alois in an embrace with another guardsman in the barracks change rooms. Of course, the families of both men have denied these rumors about their sexuality. It's also been rumored that John Paul II was hesitant to promote Alois to the role of commander because of his rumored homosexuality. Although it would be unlikely, allegedly, that the Pope would block the rise of an Opus Dei member. That's because Pope John Paul II was very sympathetic to the organization, and if Alois and his wife really were members of the group, then this may have been a factor in his rise through the Swiss Guard ranks. But some believe that Alois's promotion was blocked initially because he was an Opus Dei member. According to one Vatican insider, people inside thought that Opus Dei had their fingers in too many pies. But back to the original theory that Alois was killed as a result of a struggle between two of the many different factions within the church, the Freemasons and Opus Dei. One ex-Opus Dei member said that the organization would have been very interested in having Alois as an asset. He could tell them all the secrets he was privy to, how the Pope was feeling, who he was in contact with, his health, and things like that. He would also have access to the same secrets about the Cardinals. Keep in mind, a successor to John Paul II would be among them. And the ex-member is quoted as saying, Never forget that for Opus Dei, knowledge is power. It would be able to get anyone into the Vatican. The guards wouldn't breathe a word. You have access. You have freedom. So maybe some possible other motives there i think a lot of this is very 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 far-fetched mm -hmm. is interesting Great. sure but there's nothing concrete here i think it's kind of a after 
afterthought, really. I mean, there's no evidence to back any of this up. But it is very interesting. The whole Opus Dei thing, I would love to, to learn more about. But that leads us to one other kind of out there theory involving an intelligence operation. So the 2004 book, Le Jean Zucre du Vatican, was written by journalists Victor Guitar and Marcus Wolf, the former second-in-command of the East German secret police Stasi, which is the official name of the Ministry of State Security. And in that book, the authors claim that Alois had been a Stasi agent since 1979. In fact, only two days after his death, a newspaper in East Germany reported that Alois was an agent for Stasi. The agency was feared as the KGB. The paper also claimed that Alois has been operating under the code name Verda and allegedly sent at least seven files to Stasi during his first four years with the Swiss Guard. And allegedly, Alois used his Vatican passport and relationship to the Pope to easily cross the border. And for that, he became a prized intelligence asset. Joaquin quickly responded to the allegations, saying that the Vatican was not even considering the rumor. And one of Gladys's relatives said that the rumor was complete nonsense. But the story spread widely, and the public ate that shit up. And Pope John Paul II has been very critical of the East German government, so this was seen by the public as an alleged hypocrisy of his. However, the link to Alois and Stasi has never been definitively proven. But another theory put forth is that the three were killed by someone in the Vatican because Alois had deep knowledge of the city-state's arms trafficking. So this is interesting, and again, all alleged, but he was apparently, allegedly, uh, going undercover multiple times to Gdańsk and Warsaw, Poland, and this was to coordinate the arrival of, quote, unknown materials from Scandinavia to Solidarność, which is a Polish Catholic trade union. But again, this theory has never been proven and remains a rumor. So, Josh, what do you think? Why do you think Alois was murdered and by who? I mean, these theories would insinuate that he was not, you know, just the Swiss Guard commander, that he was like actually doing all this secret spy shit pretty much. Or that he was an Opus Dei member, you know, attempt, you know, attempting to get information on, you know, the inner workings of the Vatican or something like that. I, I just, I think it's all very interesting, but I do think it's very far-fetched on. I, I think if you look at the core of this case, and that is that Cedric was, you know, going to have a medal repealed from him. He mm. was clearly unhappy by that. He had a lot of long long history of not getting along with Alois and now Alois is the commander of the Swiss yeah. guard and potentially was going to kick him out. And he'd be, his, I mean, your whole life is kind of screwed up after being expelled from the Swiss guard. That's a big deal. I mean, and it was be, clearly a personal right. vendetta against him. Well, th think about somebody on, who's on him so hard. Exactly. Think about if you were in the secret service, you were, you know, you worked for the president and you got expelled from the secret service. Well, it's going to be tough getting a job, especially in that field of law enforcement or personal protection ever again so he kind of felt like his life was over yeah i mean i would i would like ruiner of his life out as well yeah i, I mean it, if it all went down the way that it, it looks like it went down it would make it makes pretty yeah pretty complete sense like he went in there he probably wasn't necessarily thinking gladys was going to be there too and she just was happened to be there or was in the way of what he yeah. was trying to do i mean we don't even know what the order of events was per se when he got there 
Or um, she tried to stop it. Yeah, exactly. We don't know. And just, it, I mean, it's it seems like he was very upset. And, you know, the Vatican wanted to make absolute, they wanted to make it very, very clear that this this was all Cedric's fault, that this had nothing to do with Alois or what the Vatican was doing in promoting him. And, you know, they don't want any of these other theories to... Yeah, they wanted to make clear that he was having a mental breakdown right, right. and maybe just... due to cannabis and the cyst, when in reality he was dealing with consequences due to management at the Vatican. Management's probably not the right word, but you know what I'm saying. His... Right, right. And because the Vatican seemingly kind of like swept all this under the rug real quick, mm-hmm. they've like Which no investigation. I mean, at the very least for Cedric's family, I 100% think they should have had a a full investigation and really try to get to the yeah. facts and the truth of what really happened, whether, and it seems like Muget is accepting of the fact that her son may have done this in, in the way that it, it seems like it, it all played out. I mean, at least he was upset and, you know, kind of, but I think she's more concerned about like wanting to know the truth of it. And it seems like there's all these sketchy things that but, happen after the fact with Joaquin yeah. and, and you to know, her credit, to, the note is weird. Yeah, the note's very weird. So it's like, why? Are, so it's like, I guess the question is why? Why are they trying to cover mm-hmm. this up seemingly if it is so cut and dry that this is a, a murder-suicide? Is there more to the story? Is there more, like, if an investigation had played out, would we find out more dirt maybe on Alois or what he was really up to? Or maybe there was a secret love affair going on. And for all we know, I mean, we know there's a lot... There's a lot of sexual situations going on. Yeah. <laughs> Saying that very nicely, but it's the truth. Like there's lots of that happening within uh, the Vatican and, and at all levels. So is it possible that there was something like that going on? And the last thing the church wants is that he killed him because they were having this, right. this, this gay affair. And he's that- now, he was the commander of the Swiss Guard. I mean, that's like a not a great for them, that's not a great look, right? Mm-hmm. So, so it's possible, but it's—I mean, it's all rumors. No, it's all—it's all rumors, and that's the thing—is we'll never know the truth. Yeah, because the truth has been buried away in the Vatican archive somewhere, and if it was ever even seeked out in the first place, I mean, I'm sure there's more sought to the story. Sought out more. <laughs> there's more to the story. I 100% believe. I just don't think we'll ever see mm-hmm. see those. Uh, mm-hmm files or truth comes to light it today seem like a rush job at the end it's but. like they want it to go away and forget about it but well of course we want to know what you guys think so let us know in the comments below have you ever been to the vatican yeah was it fun about that was it fun did you see the pope probably cool cool experience yeah it'd be cool we should go you know we want to go to italy one day and you know maybe we'll pop by the vatican and we were supposed to go twice for the swiss guard yeah, we were. We had two trips booked. Yeah. Well, we were about to leave for, we had a whole trip. We we're going to go do the whole shebang. And then we had baby rabbits. Then we had 10 baby rabbits on our floor. Yeah. And we couldn't leave. So. Well, if you don't, that probably made no <laughs> sense to people. But yeah. yeah, we had a rabbit who we adopted. One of we our didn't pets, know she was yeah. pregnant. And then she ended up having eight babies and we didn't want to leave them. There's a video no out there. No regrets, though. Somewhere, they were so. cute as fuck. But then the pandemic happened the second time. Right. Yeah, so maybe we've never we'll, been over there. I don't know. With the baby, that seems like it'd be pretty hard. We'll see. Maybe one day. But anyway, we, of course, want to hear your thoughts. So let us know. And thank you so much to Julia and Tom for joining us today and giving us some good insight. Very nice, both of you. Very helpful because our our 
Catholic knowledge. I mean, even yeah, though especially me, my whole dad's side of my family is Catholic. I just never was, mm-hmm. you know, I never really went into. I went to it's mass like once, stuff. but yeah, it's it's got its whole. I mean, it's a whole thing going on there. So the Lord goes crazy. It, really yeah. does. it, it does. The Lord like goes it. crazy. Yeah. <laughs> but that's it for us today. We'll see you guys next week. Make sure you're following, subscribed on YouTube, Spotify, and all the places. Until next time, keep on taking your mind a mile higher.